0: Hey, everybody, and welcome to another edition of Talking Hockey Sense. It's episode 60 of the podcast. I'm Chris Peters. So glad you could join me for this week's episode. Got a lot to get to today as we do every week, uh, but we are going to be talking about my 2023 NHL draft rankings. Got a lot of questions from readers and listeners to find out more thoughts from me on some of the players that we have highlighted over the course of the year. You can go read the NHL draft rankings on flowhockey.tv right now. It's uh, just search 2023 NHL draft rankings on Google, or you can go over to our rankings tab, and it'll pull down all of our power rankings and our NHL draft rankings. So make sure to check that out. We've got all 32 players that I have in my first round at this very early stage of the season listed, and we will talk about that. In a minute, but there's a lot more to get to because the biggest story in hockey right now does involve a prospect. And if you have been anywhere near Twitter or anywhere else since Friday, you know that the large amount of the conversation has been about what is going on with the Boston Bruins and Mitchell Miller. We're going to talk about it here. We're going to get into it. It's obviously a very sensitive subject for a lot of people um, and and for for everybody really because it, it deals with things of like bullying, racism um you know also the opportunity for for a player you know how long um should miller uh kind of be condemned to to not uh not participating in hockey i mean that's another question that some people have but the most important thing is is that you know we're we're going to talk about the facts first and then we'll get into some of my thoughts a little bit later but i think the facts are important in this case because it, it it kind of, you know, in the social media world, everything kind of gets jumbled a little bit. But I wanted to make sure that we were very specific about how we talked about things um in respect to everybody involved and making sure that there's a lot of fact-based conversation here. Because, you know, quite frankly, Friday, the if you don't know the the Mitchell Miller story, I'm going to give you the brief summary now with, with you know, the specific facts. Um, Miller, who was playing in the USHL a few years ago, was drafted by the Arizona Coyotes. Um, in the fourth round in 2020. One of the things that kind of was involved in the entire process of his draft season and something that I didn't fully understand until even after he was drafted, I didn't have all of the facts of what had happened um, in, in this situation a- until after he was drafted and more and more came out. But uh, the Arizona Republic wrote a story about, you know, basically when, when Miller was 14, uh, he was criminally charged with, uh, assault uh, specifically, assault and violating the Ohio Safe Schools Act, and so he was 14 years old in eighth grade at the time, um, and basically was bullying a a black teenager uh, who had some developmental disabilities uh, named Isaiah Meyer Carruthers. Now Isaiah has been on the record; he was on the record in that Arizona Republic story. His mother has been out in front of this as well, very vocal about you know the, her her feeling that Miller had never had remorse. Um, Miller admitted in court. Uh, to the charges against him, when he was fourteen, he was uh, had to do court-mandated community service, had to also do um, some rehabilitation and other other things like that. And then also there was a court-mandated apology to is I- Isaiah Meyer Carruthers. Um, among the things that Miller was accused of doing that was part of the court proceedings was um, rubbing a push pop into a urinal and giving it to Meyer Crothers. Um, According to the report, they actually offered it to other people. I mean, this is, it's disgusting. And and, and just, even if you're 14, it's just ridiculous uh, that this was ever something somebody would consider doing to another human being. Um, And eventually they told Isaiah what what they did with it. And that created another, um, you know, kind of situation. Uh, The video surveillance also showed Miller and another student, um, assaulting Isaiah as well. Um, so there was irrefutable evidence that this happened. And then other eyewitnesses had said that Miller and this, uh, other teenager had often referred to, uh, Meyer Carruthers in racist terms, um, and, and used racist language and there were racist taunts. So there was that other element. Miller eventually, you know, the, the Arizona stood by him for a period of time, and then when the heat really raised the temperature and a lot of people were very upset, and rightfully so, by, by the fact that they drafted him and, and the more and more details that came out, and a lot of people didn't feel that Miller was necessarily um, sorry enough or, or had shown enough remorse or had shown any rehabilitation since that time uh, to, to be drafted. And so Arizona ends up renouncing his draft rights. Uh, Something that I don't really know has ever happened in the NHL before. I didn't even know it was possible, Um, but they renounced his draft rights. And as such, Miller, you know, has no connection to any NHL team. He took the 2020-21 season off. Last season, he played in the USHL for the Tri-City Storm, which is the team that he played with in his draft season. Um, Had a very good season, was the player of the year. Um, you know a lot of things there. Uh, I know that Tri City had said you know they they had been working with him to do more in the community um, and volunteering and all those different things. Um, there are certainly people that are upset that he was even you know given an award um, for a record-setting season in the USHL. Obviously, the off-ice stuff much more important to people than anything he did on the ice um and and i have no issue with that what i would say uh the so the next thing is is that you know one thing that i tweeted out is that there were a number of, of ncaa schools you know that you kind of hear through the grapevine don't necessarily hear the specifics but there were schools at least trying to find out whether or not their school would be willing to take miller on in the course of all that what happened miller also lost a scholarship at the university of north dakota Um, so he was no longer able to play hockey there. He left after a semester. Um, and so that also happened in that course. So there were other schools that were saying, you know, you know, can we do this? Can we, and, and in every case, once that decision reached the athletic director's desk, that was something they were not willing to take on. And, And you understand that in a, in a college setting, especially, I mean, like there's, you're, you're dealing with a diverse community and certainly a lot of people with, um, that that you're trying to uh, be an inclusive space and when you have somebody with that on their record representing your university, it changes things for a lot of people and it certainly would bother a lot of people and rightfully so. So you've got that as well and then, uh, but but no schools took, took them on. And so Miller was not playing anywhere. The Bruins on Friday announced they had signed him not just to any contract, but an NHL entry-level contract, an NHL contract. That is the thing that I think struck me the most is that a team was willing to take on everything that was about to come to them with an NHL contract for this player. And we're going to get into that discussion as well, like the worth of doing something like this as well. But that was another thing that was, you know, stuck out to me is that this is a team that made a significant commitment to the player you get 50 contracts and so they were going to send miller to the ahl but he was still going to be on a two-way nhl deal making very good money having a bonus uh, you know bonus structure and everything else and was going to play in the ahl providence and and have an opportunity and the other thing that the nhl contract says to me is that there were other teams interested and that's something that miller has said uh as well that there were other teams that were contacting him so the Bruins were the ones that that won out, and end up now taking on the firestorm that came because as soon as that announcement was made, it was immediate. It was immediate that it was, you know, uh, derision, and and then what the Bruins did next, it was a compounding of issues and a comedy of errors. And it would be funny if it wasn't so sad. But basically, the Bruins came out. Don Sweeney got out in front of the the cameras and and did a press conference. And to their credit, they they went out immediately, faced the music, but then they didn't really have good answers. Uh, they didn't have good answers. They couldn't tell you anything about, you know, what Mitchell had done to rehabilitate himself, only that he had been working on it and that he'd been working with groups and that they feel he was contrite and that he was remorseful. Um, one thing they did not do in the course of this process was reach out to the victim's family. Um, and that is certainly, you know, that could have been the nail in the coffin of, of their decision. They chose not to do that. They also did not let the NHL know that they were going to do this Commissioner Gary Bettman reached for comment by Mike Zeisberger from NHL.com says that he doesn't think that Miller is even, or he said Miller was not eligible for the NHL, didn't know if he would ever become eligible for the NHL, uh, which is a whole other ball of wax as well. Um, And so that also happens in this whole process where Boston may have signed a player that they weren't even eligible to sign. Um, However, uh, the contract was registered. Um, It was put through into the central registry. So the NHL, at least in some degree, accepted the contract. Um, So, you know, maybe not at the commissioner level, but at some other level. So that's another factor in this whole thing. But, you know, then on Sunday, so this all goes through, um, it should be noted, uh, Mitchell Miller is represented by Eustace King, a very respected agent in the NHL, um, also a black man who has been very involved in the NHL's diversity and inclusion initiatives um and you know represents black players as well, and so that was another factor that you know was was kind of people had a hard time with that, and I know Eustace put out a statement that was widely derided uh, again didn't center the victim um in in that in that statement, which I think was a problem for a lot of people and rightfully so um so that happens as well in this whole this whole process so it's been it's been an absolute nightmare for all involved. um, And now the Bruins on Sunday announced that they were going to rescind the opportunity for Miller based on new information. According to Cam Neely, the new information was that he didn't realize that nobody had talked to the victim's family before they agreed to this contract. He's the president of the organization. That's not something that you can pass off. I'm sorry. If a decision at this level, you have to be involved in that decision. And I think this is going to have long-lasting ramifications for the Boston Bruins organization, not just in that they signed Miller, but in the way that they handled it in the aftermath. And now they're in a situation where it's only getting worse. Um, And their reputation has been sullied. I think it's also important to point out that the players on the team said that they were confused by the decision, that they didn't like it. You know, Nick Foligno was very vocal. Patrice Bergeron you know, tried to take a a pragmatic, you know, uh, measured approach, but also said that he didn't feel that that, you know, that signing necessarily represented the Bruins organization's values or their team's values, where they want to be a place of inclusion. Uh, Very famously, Zeno Zeno Chara, when he was the captain of that team, you know, made sure that there was no, you know, everybody that was on the team was treated exactly the same, whether they were a rookie or not, you know, they wanted to make sure that there was an inclusive environment where everybody felt welcome. and so. Here's where things get difficult, because I think with Miller, does what he did as bad as it was at 14 years old end up, you know, basically saying, okay, for the rest of your life, you can no longer be a professional hockey player. Maybe it should. I don't know. I, I'm i more of a believer in, as a society, we have a justice system in place. We have, and and believe me, it's imperfect and it's justice is not always served. Um, in this particular instance, Miller was brought for before juvenile court. He admitted to the, the acts of wrongdoing. He submitted to the requirements that he had. Um, so in terms of his debt to society, that is paid the debt to the, what it says about him as a person. And if he we the thing that i don't know i don't know exactly how much work he's put into rebuilding himself i don't know how much work he's put into putting this behind him while also learning from it i don't know that for a fact and that's something that i've seen a lot on social media is that he hasn't shown the remorse and i think there are there are definitely you know a lot of varying viewpoints on how one does that how one does show remorse. And then the other thing too is uh, there's been a lot that said well, you know, he only did it because the court mandated it, he only did it because he wanted a hockey career. I think you know, incentive you shouldn't have to be incentivized to be a good person. Believe me. I know you shouldn't there shouldn't be incentives for that, but I think as we function as a society, the things if you want certain things, you have to do certain things. Um and I think that that's you know what Miller has started to do. I think the process is still not, it's still playing out. And I think that what the Bruins did was incorrect in that they, they assume that they could be the ones to sign him and everything would be, you know, better. He'll, you know, we'll work with them. We'll do all the things that we need to do. And I believe that, you know, they want to do that. Um, But at the same time, it comes back to what does this say about professional sports? The thing that strikes me about this the most is was Mitchell Miller the player worth it to deal with Mitchell Miller the person and what he did? And I don't think there are many instances where that would be true, where you could say, yes, that that is worth it. What the Bruins did is they 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 definitely have hurt their their brand and hurt their their business by trying to align themselves with this particular player. How they've handled it has further impacted them negatively. And it's going to have ramifications. The thing is, is if you believe in the player that much, that you were willing to take all of that on, either stand by it or you just, you know, forget about it. I mean, why even do it in the first place? You had to know that this was going to be the reaction. Um, And, you know, I, I don't think that Mitchell Miller should never play hockey again. I think there has to be a path to redemption for us. That's what we are in a civilized society. There has to be a path back to redemption that doesn't necessarily have to include playing in the NHL. We don't all get to live our dreams. If we've done things that have been detrimental to society and another person. I mean, that's the thing that, that the Bruins have to continue to contend with is what that signing says about their organization and said that, that hockey mattered more than what everything else said. And, and I've watched Mitchell Miller play. I think he's a good hockey player. I think he's, you know, I think he's got a chance to be an NHL player if this didn't happen in his past. But what is he good enough to take on all the baggage that comes with it? And I don't think that any NHL team can say that. The Bruins thought they could. That's the thing that is really str- strange to me is that they thought that they could handle all that and still make that decision. And in the end, now we see Mitchell Miller won't be playing for them. They've embarrassed themselves. And now we've had we have this larger conversation. You know, there are lives impacted here. And the number one person that you know I'm thinking about is Isaiah Meyer Cruthers and how he feels about all of this. You know, he was vocal after Miller was drafted. We haven't heard of from him in this particular instance. And I don't think that we have to. I don't think that somebody should have to go through the traumas that they faced at a younger age. For our benefit or for anyone's benefit, they should handle it, however they're supposed to handle it. But I do think that this is a situation where we have to decide also um if does Mitchell Miller never get to resume his life? does he never get to go back to to where things are and i believe it, i if it were me, I wouldn't have thought twice there's no way I was signing him no way, but it that's me, and the Bruins had to decide for themselves, and they made that decision. Now they're dealing with the consequences of that. So I think what this says is that, you know, Mitchell Miller will never play in the NHL. Um, he, if he wants to resume his hockey career, it's more likely going to have to be somewhere far away from here. Um, and uh, and it's up to him if that's, if hockey means enough to him that he wants to do that, then, then do that. But, you know, but I also think that there should be, and I hope, I hope out of all of this, Mitchell Miller got help got education, is getting rehabilitated, is a better person today than he was when he was younger and a better person than he was when he was drafted, a better person than he was yesterday because he needs to improve personally. I don't know him personally. I can't speak to what he's done or where he's going next. All I can say is that I hope that in the end, everyone can learn from this situation and be better for it down the road. So it's not an easy situation. It's not you know I, again, I don't think that this should be a, a life sentence you know to to not rejoin society as you once were. That's what we do in this country, typically. we allow people to do that to to rejoin society once they've paid their debt to society. but I think that Mitchell Miller does have to do more to to achieve anything else beyond what he's already done so it's it's a, it's just a sad situation. Nobody wins here, and I think that the you know the Bruins were a little bit um naive to think that they could be the ones to do this. Uh, And in the end, you know, who knows where this goes from here, but a sad situation all the way around. Well, not a real easy way to transition from that heavy topic, but it was certainly important for us to get to um, because it is the most important news of the week. And it says a lot more about hockey than anything else. But we will get back to the hockey because we are talking about the 2023 NHL draft. We are talking about more players um you know that are there that have nothing to do with any of that so uh but but we do want to move on to talking about the draft rankings and so the draft rankings came out on flow hockey last week my personal ones i uh, ranked the top 32 players for the nhl draft i i put out a call for a lot of questions we're gonna get to those very soon uh because a lot of you did have questions i also asked for critiques if anybody wanted to you know rip apart my rankings they absolutely could have nobody did that was very nice thank you for not doing that um so yeah, but that was that was something that, you know, we're it takes a lot of work, there's a lot that goes into it. Um but, you know, we talked a little bit about last week some of the trends and different things, but just to give you a little snippet, the preview of uh of this draft rankings, um uh, my personal draft rankings are um are now out. You'll see Connor Bedard number 1. You probably already knew that from listening to the podcast last week. I do think that, you know, that the the top tier of this draft, Bedard is not necessarily Alone, I think he is above, you know, he, he might be a cut above the rest in terms of what he's done. Um, but I do think that the, the gap between him and, say, Adam Fantilli uh, and, and Matthew Mitchkov is not necessarily a giant one. Um, I think there's a lot of room for those guys to make up some ground and make it a, an interesting race here. But, you know, Conor Bedard is scoring, you know, close to two points a game in the, o- in the WHL right now for Regina. Um, you know, the, the Pats haven't been an amazing team this year. They've been okay. Uh, but he's been remarkable, and he continues to produce at a high level. There's just not many players like him. There's not been a goal scorer like him in a long, long time. Um, so I'm very excited to see where he goes, but he's number one to start. Adam Fantilli comes in at number two. Big power center. We talked a lot about him last week. Won't spend as much time on him this week. So uh, we'll give you a break from from Fantilli watch, but you know he just scored an overtime game winner for Michigan in a big series against Penn State, um, continuing to score at a two-point-per-game pace at the collegiate level, which is just remarkable. Uh, Matt V. Michkov, he continues to score in the Russian VHL, which is a second-tier league um, in, uh, in the, the professional ranks of Russia. Uh, he's averaging about a goal per game right now. He's making great plays. He's been a, a power play weapon. Um, you know, the, he's, he's handling the the size and strength of the players against him very well. So very good to see Matt V. uh continuing to, to achieve at a pretty high level. Number four is the big Swedish uh Forward, Leo Carlson, you know, can play center, can play wing, um, probably a wing, you know, in terms of power forward, really good hands, speed, does a lot of things well, like checks a lot of the boxes, I think he's a very clear number four, and then I think this is where we start seeing the separation in the draft a little bit more, um, but at number five, I have Braden Yeager from the Moose Jaw Warriors in the WHL, and I think Yeager's just a remarkable playmaker, he's got a great shot, he can score, you know, he makes all the right decisions with the puck on his stick, He picks apart defenses. He can get through the perimeter. He can get to the interior to score as well. Um, But yeah, I mean, I think that he's a really exceptional talent. I'm really excited to see where he goes next. But but that's our top five. And beyond that, you can check out the the rankings and even pull them up right now while you're listening or watching on Flow Hockey so that we can talk about some of these rankings. But one of the big things that, you know, we talked about trends last week, and I want to talk a little bit more specifically about leagues this year. And you'll notice on the draft rankings, there's a lot of WHL players. And this is going to be a big year for the dub. It's going to be fascinating to watch. you got Bedard and Jaeger at the top. Uh, but then you've also got Zach Benson. you got Andrew Crystal. Crystal. You've got Nate Danielson, Riley Height, Cohen Zemer, all in the top 32. And that's just from the WHL. Zemer and Height are even on the same team in Prince George. Honorable mentions, there were three of them, Callum Lynn, Samuel Honzik, and Caden Price. So, I mean, you know, the WHL is, is pretty sensational this year. And they even have one of the top goaltending prospects as well as Carson Bjarnason playing in Brandon. So, WHL, big year for them. Um, we've seen it a few years ago. We had the, the draft where it was Bowen Byram, Kirby Dock, Dylan Cousins, Peyton Krebs. You know, That was a year where, where the dub really was strong. But this year in particular might even be better. Um, you know, we've got a, a real good mix of players, a lot of playmakers, a guys that can play with with some real good pace and, um, you know, have, have good skill. I think Zach Benson is one of the most fascinating players in this draft. Not a big guy, but very crafty, um, makes a lot of smart plays with the puck. So a lot to like about that WHL group and uh, very much looking forward to seeing them um, in the near future in person just because there's so much out there. Uh dub is a little bit harder. If you're an American guy in uh in the middle of in the US, it's a little bit harder to get to the dub uh and, and travel around than it is some of the other places that we go. Uh like the USHL, which is where I'm going next. And you know, we have there are four NTDP players from the National Team Development Program that did make the top thirty-two. Um, Will Smith, Ryan Leonard, Oliver Moore, and Gabe Perot in that order um throughout the top thirty-two. But also the USHL is home to the number one goalie prospect in this draft, Michael Harabo, who we've talked about before, continues to be very strong, has played very well throughout the year. He did have um, his worst start of the season last weekend after the draft rankings came out, so I don't know if we gave him a little flow hockey jinx on that one. Uh, but he did have a, a rough outing, and really that's one of the first that he's had since he's been in North America, um, otherwise very good. Maxime Stirbach is another guy that we have in the top 32. It's not necessarily a, – a, I don't think he's solidly in there. I still need to see more. The offense hasn't come quite as much as I had hoped it would. Wondering, you know, can he make the plays? He's got the fluidity. He's got great skating. He's got some defensive capabilities. You know, can he be more than a big defenseman that can skate? That's what we're trying to find out. I think the package is there. It's just, can he do a little bit more? And that's what we have to wait and see. But I thought he did enough for me to put him in in the top 32, especially going back to the World Juniors where he was in the top 32. So he plays for the Sioux Falls Stampede. Great opportunity to see him. He's on Flow Hockey. Um, so as uh, michael Harabo, make sure you'll get to watch those players um you know guys that didn't make the top thirty two but were right right there um uh you know i think Andrew strathman, the defenseman from Youngstown and william Whitelaw very skilled forward from uh from Youngstown as well both of them very strong candidates potentially could push for the first round i think strathman's up against it a little bit more just because he's a you know five foot eleven six foot defenseman um you know where where he's it's all about skating and and, and puck movement for him. It, does he do it at a high enough level to overcome some of the concerns about size? This isn't a great year for defensemen, so I think we're not going to see a ton of defensemen in general go in the first round, but he's one of those guys that potentially could. And then William Whitelaw is probably one of the most skilled and exciting and entertaining players to play in the USHL this season. He's got great puck skills, does a lot of things well, but I think that you know there's, there's certainly some questions that I still have about what he's going to do next. In this, uh, in this process, but um, very excited to see them. And then also some USHL alumni, Adam Fantilli at number two. He's a former Chicago Steel guy. Uh, Gavin Brindley, also at Michigan with, with Adam Fantilli. He played at Tri-City in the USHL. And then Charlie Stramel also in the top 20 uh, after he is uh, he's playing at Wisconsin now, but played for the National Team Development Program. So those are some other USHL names of note. So now that we've talked a little bit about the rankings. We'll drill down a little bit more with your questions. And I, I opened it up. I got a lot of great questions on, and different things that people wanted to, to ask me. And the first one is a very generalized question that I think is a good one. And we'll talk about it a little bit here. And it comes from at Vince zisu He asks, can you talk about the tiers for the next draft? Superstar, star level, top six potential. Would be nice to understand the shape of the first round as it is as of today. So it's a very good question, and, you know, I think it's very difficult for me to tier the draft this early because it's going to change dramatically, um, and I think that tiering the draft at this point, it's totally fine. I mean, I think that, you know, I'm certainly doing it myself internally, but I didn't necessarily present it publicly. Um, what I would say is that, you know, if we're talking superstar potential, you know, uh, transformational player, generational goal scorer, Conor Bedard, number one and then it's him and he's in that class by himself but I do think Adam Fantilli has superstar potential Vay Mishkov has superstar potential Leo Carlson I'd say is close you know star top of the lineup player um not necessarily in that superstar category yet but he is playing at a high enough level where you're like wow maybe he is maybe he is in that group so I'd say you've got Bedard in his class of his own got Fantillion, Mitchkov together, and Carlson shortly behind him. And then that's where the the, the gap starts. And that's where you start seeing. So, you know, you've got Braden Yeager and Zach Benson, similar players, similar league. Uh, You're playing the same league. You know, they've had a lot of similar success in terms of their production. Those guys, Edward Shala Shala is also in that that group. Will Smith, elite playmaker from the NTDP, I think in that next tier as well. Callum Ritchie, a little bit of a bigger forward, got some power elements to his game the Libor Dvorsky also in that mix. So you're talking basically now from five to about 10. That's where I would group that next, um, you know, top six potential guys that could be impact players. And then things start getting a little more interesting. You know, I've got Matthew Wood at number 11. I got a question about him that we we aren't going to actually, we're going to have time to get to today, but I'll, I'll just mention now, you know, Matthew Wood at number 11. Um, I think it's a high upside play. He's got strength. He's got size. He's got good scoring sense. He's the youngest player in college hockey um playing at a high level. Um so you know, I've got him in that next group, Kasper Haltunen, Cameron Allen, Charlie Stremel, Ethan Goce, um you know, Michael Robble who I think is a number 1 potential goalie. The only way you put a goalie in the in the in the first round if you're me or anyone else is if you think he's a number 1 goalie. I do think Michael Robble is a number 1 goalie in the NHL. So he is in that mix as well and like basically, you know, we're we're getting to our fourth tier now, but that's still You know, if you're going to qualify, it's just the reason that he's lower is because there's so much more risk with goaltenders. That's why, you know, a goalie is lower on the list. But then you got others like Ryan Leonard, Colby Barlow, Nate Danielson, just going down the list here. And that's, you know, kind of where things are, you're starting to say, okay, well, there's a lot more risk, it feels like. So I'd say, you know, if you're picking within the the first, you know, Ten picks, you're feeling really good. The next few, you're saying, okay, we think we have a really good player here, um, but then the, you know the risk just continues to to get a little bit more, and, and the certainty goes down as well. So that's kind of where it's at. It's a very you know general sense of where the tiers are right now. But those guys in that top ten of this draft are guys that I feel are you know top six to a star potential um, there. So so definitely um, a good question there to to talk about that. Our next one comes from @jzoom. He asks, given his contract status, who takes a shot at Mitchkov and when? This is the big question that we're going to ask throughout the entire season. And I think, you know, if you look at the way that the draft is shaking out right now, I look at teams like Columbus, who's never been shy of being aggressive at the draft. Um, you know, they're towards the bottom of the standings right now. Anaheim has their young core kind of set, you know, like, but then they've also got Pablo Mentukov coming along, you know, maybe that's an opportunity to say, hey, we think we, our young guys are coming. We have some more time. We can, we can get Mitchkov and just, you know, take it to the next level. Now, Anaheim also probably is looking like, hey, maybe we still need to get bigger and tougher. We did that with Mason McTavish. We need to do it still. You know, do they decide to go in a different direction? Um, I think that, you know, I would be very surprised if Matt May Michkov slipped below seven. Um, I think once you get into that range, you say, I don't care about the risk. The player is special. Let's, let's make it happen here. Um, So I don't think he's going to go much further down than that, but it's possible. And it's not just the contract. It's the, it's everything else that's going on with Russia. Does he have his military obligations fulfilled? Does he have, you know, is there a chance that if we do sign him, he's going to get sent to a Naval base like Ivan Fedotov? Like those are legitimate concerns that teams have to have about Russian players right now. And, It's scary to think about, but that's just the way that it is. And so, uh, but I do think that he'll still be a top 10 pick at worst. And, you know, for me, on talent alone, he's the number three prospect in this draft. And, you know, I think he could easily, you know, contend um, to to move up. Next one comes from at Mario Tirabassi. Is anyone in the 2023 class close to joining the elite tier with Bedard, Mitchkov, and Fantilli? And... The only guy that's close for me right now is Leo Carlson. Uh, we did talk about him. He's got the size factor. He's a good skater. He's got great hands. He's scoring at a high level in the uh, SHL right now. So I think he's trending in that direction. I think there are teams that absolutely hope that they're picking in that top four. If you pick in that top four, you've got a game-changing prospect. And I think Leo Carlson is in that conversation to be a game-changing prospect, to be a guy that you can you know be a building block for your franchise. Um, at this early stage now we have to wait for the entire season to play out maybe other players emerge you know we've other guys that have had slow starts suddenly break out or players that are doing very well right now go the opposite direction anything can happen over the course of this draft season so we don't want to count our chickens before they're hatched but we are this is our early look this is what we're doing it's our early look that's what we have to, to say about it all right so i did get one critique of the of the uh, draft rankings and it came from at review of hockey steal the draft if he goes this late number 30 31st overall cone zemer right wing prince george cougars whl and you very well could be right um i'll, I'll and i'm going to also go to the next question that we had because it involves zemer as well and this one comes from brody and it asks seeing both him and riley height tonight play tonight very impressive their line has completely dominated spokane can you talk about these two in an upcoming pod? We'd love to hear your thoughts. Well, yes, I can. And thank you very much for the question, Brody. And thanks for the, the comment review of hockey as well. Um, so Cohn Zemer is one of the highest scoring draft eligible talents. He's second behind Bedard um, in the WHL right now. And the points are immense, you know, and, and, the, and he's getting them, you know, with, with regularity, great consistency. And that's exactly what we want to see. I think the reason that I have Zemer a little bit lower is my book isn't as big on him as I, as it is on some of the other players. Some of the concerns that I have at this point, I think the skating is only okay. And I think that a lot of his points that I've seen so far this season um, have come in ways that maybe don't necessarily translate to NHL success. That's a very important thing to look at when you see a player that's achieving at a high level. How are they getting their points? Are they getting them from the outside? Are they getting them from the inside? Are they making defenders miss? Are they, you know, how often are they getting behind the defense? Is it because the players they're playing against can't handle certain aspects of their game? The thing about Zemer is he's got incredible hands, a great release on his shot. He has the tools. Um, The skating, I think, is going to need to improve. I think his his stride's a little bit short and a little choppy for me. Um, And then, you know, I think that that's going to have to come along. As far as Riley Height goes, you know, I had him higher in the draft. Not as productive. But I think that he has a little bit more of those projectable tools. I think he plays with some physical strength. He's got some playmaking ability. Um, you know, he's he's also got a little bit more of a track record. We've kind of seen him uh achieve at at, at other levels. You know, I've got him right now at twenty-third in the draft, and I think that he's a guy that could very well move up. Um, I just think his offensive instincts are very strong. Um, and, and you know, I think he's not he's not big, but, as I mentioned, I think he's got some good strength on his feet. I think he's a strong skater. I think he's hard to knock off the puck um and then you know, I think he he probably needs to get his the one thing that I would say that that needs to improve and this goes for both players is that short distance quickness. A lot of the game is played in these small areas um and winning puck battles and getting to loose pucks and all those things that can be the difference and that's why I think that you know some players make it, and some players don't they're able to get their... So I think both of those players, they're in the lower half of the first round for me. There are some, it's its mostly skating elements that I think are going to need to, to improve. I, I think Height is a better skater personally, but you know, I need to watch a lot more of both and, and see how they progress over the course of the season. Very well could go. And yes, that could be the steal of the draft, but luckily the draft isn't until June. So we got a lot more time to figure out where he goes next. So these are not set in stone. Draft rankings are early. There's a lot more to get to there. All right, our next question comes from at Frenchie 10 x Chris, for the 20, for the NHL Draft 2023, where do you put the two best goaltenders of the draft? End of the first round, beginning of the second round, or late second round? Goalie from Omaha and goalie from Brandon. So we talked a little bit about both. I said Michael Robble, I feel, is a number one goalie uh, prospect or has number one potential. That means that he should be a first round draft pick. If you can find a number one goalie in the draft, if you're, there's a guy that you're confident enough in that can be a number one, you can take him in the first round because that's where the value is. You want a player that's going to play a lot. There's a lot of risk there, though. And so, as you'll notice, Carson Bjarnason, who did get an A rating from uh, from Central Scouting, is not in my top 32. And he's a guy that I would see more in the second round. He's got good size, very solid, um, very composed in the net, good numbers so far this season in the WHL for Brandon. He's playing a lot, and he's playing well. So he very well could move up as well. It's just harder for me to project him, as I think that Harabal has the higher ceiling. Um, in the same situation, like you look at, uh, I think Bjarnason might be a little bit more technically sound, but I think Harabal has a little bit more of the intangible intangible benefits, and then also has the size factor. Being six foot six and as com- as calm in the net as he is, and 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 as controlled as he is, that's where he becomes a bit of, more of a rarity, and that's why you know, i bumped bump that player up a little bit. So I'd say Bjarnason absolutely has a chance to get into the first round conversation. Right now he's in the second. There are other goalies. It's an interesting year for goalies actually in general. There are a number of guys that you can look at and say, hey, there are some really good players here. Um, and so that's that's where I'm looking forward to seeing is, is, is where do those players go um, next and how do these goalies progress? Are they able to stay consistent? Are they able to continue pushing themselves? Are they getting physically stronger? You know, is the year going better as they get on? Is are they, How do they do in more competitive games? How do they do in playoff situations? All those factors are going to come into play. We also should see Harabal and potentially Bjarnason in some international tournaments, um, depending on if Barnison is ends up at the under-18s or anything like that. So something to, to, to keep an eye on. All right, our next one comes from At Hockey War Room. <clears throat> Excuse me. And he asks, should Charlie Stramel have gone the NCAA route this season, seeing how his offense has somewhat dropped under Granado's defensive style, or would returning to the USDP have been better for him? All right. So, thanks for the question. First thing, uh, Charlie Stramel's too old to play in the national team development program anymore. So he aged out. He's a late birth date. Um, uh, a late. Uh, so as a late birth date, he is no longer eligible. So he goes to college. Uh, at wisconsin that's that was his decision last year he was one of the last players in his uh, age group to commit um committed to wisconsin um or one of the top players to commit committed to wisconsin and he has really not he struggled this year um and i did keep him in my top 15 mainly because i i'm a believer in the player um I don't think it's a defensive system that Wisconsin plays. That's, that's the reason that they're, they aren't scoring. I just don't think they're very good. Um, and that can be very difficult for a top player to be in that environment. We saw it with Alex turcott after his draft year. Um, you know, he struggled in that environment. Um, Cole Caulfield, you know, was able to get through it. But when the team struggles, it's really hard for the individual to have success. And, I also think that, you know, Charlie Stramel is not a game breaker. He is a big forward that has tremendous potential to be a game breaker, but he hasn't been that yet in his young career. He's been that big forward that can score and he needs somebody that can get him the puck. He's, he's not always going to be a play driver, uh, but at his size, at his speed, at his with his release you say, okay, this is a guy that can do some damage. So um, I don't think going the NCAA route was necessarily the wrong decision. Um, I did speak with somebody who said he thought maybe he should have spent an extra year in the USHL. Um, players that are top prospects like Stramel, that just never happens. They are either going to, if they're younger like Matthew Wood, accelerated so he would be able to enter college a year early. Um, because people want to see you play against better competition. I don't, you know, but this is a situation where Charlie Stramel's draft stock is falling. Um I don't think you know going elsewhere is going to really change anything for him. He's just got to continue to play better. Um and it can be difficult when you're losing. This is a team that's only won a couple of games. Um Stremel's, you know, I think he's only had two three points right now um in the in the season. So um there's a lot of concern there about you know what this means and production isn't everything, but it is if you don't produce it becomes a problem. And um it's still early. Uh, so we'll have to wait and see, but that is a situation Charlie Stramel is going to have to, uh, you know, basically figure that out um, because yeah, it's 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 his draft season. It's hard to to do it. So we will uh, keep an eye on Charlie Strammel for sure. All right, our next question comes from at Jake Baskin P by P. Yes, what are your thoughts on Gavin Brinley? He gets overshadowed by the other three bigger first time co- eligible college freshmen but I like him a lot in the USHL and I like the way that he started at Michigan. Well, I I like him too, Jake. I think that he's had a great start at Michigan. He's playing the exact style that, you know, I I've seen from him throughout the last couple of years. And, you know, he was a great USHL player last year, ended up getting called up to the uh, under 18 team for the world under 18 championship was, I think the only player from outside of the national team development program to make that team, um, which says a lot. And, You know, I think that he is uh, a real spark plug player. He plays with a lot of energy. He plays with a lot of jump. I just like the way that he he does pretty much everything. Um, He's tenacious. He's hard on pucks, and then he's got the offensive ability to finish. And we're starting to see that. So I have him as an end of the first round guy right now. He's in the top thirty two. You know, I think that he still has a lot to prove. I think that you know he he definitely the size factor for him is not necessarily on his side, um, but the aggressiveness that he plays with, the speed that he plays with. All very impressive, and I think that's going to give him an edge and give him an opportunity to go higher in the draft because he is playing at a, a very strong rate. Um, you know, Michigan split with Penn State last weekend, and I thought that Brindley was one of the guys that I noticed a lot, um, especially in that Friday game, even though they lost because I thought his speed was a factor in that game. All right, next one comes from at putsky 88 If the Canucks end up with a top-five pick, which is highly likely, and they need a D in their development pool, Are there any D options there or would they need a trade to trade down? Well, if they're in the top five, there isn't a defenseman in the top five in this draft. I just don't see it. Um, The first defenseman I have ranked is um, uh, Cam Allen. Uh, Sorry for just blanking for a second there. Cam Allen is the top defenseman that I have ranked right now. And he's at 13th on the list. Um, And so you know, I think if you are the Canucks, you are not in any position to be picky at the draft. You have to take the best player available. They don't have a very good prospect pool. They don't have a lot in it. Um, you know, they, they've had the benefit of, of guys that have, have moved up quickly. Guys like Pedersen, Hughes, um, you know, and, and, and Podkolzin and others that, that have moved up quickly. Uh, but they don't have a lot in that secondary pipeline so they they don't really i don't think it makes any sense for them to focus on a defenseman in this draft it's not a draft to do that in it's a draft to land the most impactful player that you can and if they're in the top five or if they're you know in the top ten um that may not include a defenseman so you got to decide you know where where you're putting players and and there's there's a lot there so um this is a good draft for forwards not as good a draft for defensemen so you just kind of have to let the chips fall where they may and and make the best pick possible. But I don't think there's there's anything there. But it, it, just to give you an answer to your question, though, in terms of defense options, you know, there is Allen. Uh, Mikhail Gulaev is another very interesting defenseman. We talked about him a little bit last week. Excellent skater, very shifty, offensive-style defenseman out of Russia. But, you know, there's the Russian factor, which is different than it's ever been before. Um, you know, Theo Lindstein is another guy that I like from Sweden um axel sandin pelica another swedish defenseman you know not a lot of big defensemen but a lot of you know rangy guys that can play with some pace and some skating ability and make good passes like that's that's kind of where this draft is in terms of defense and then you get other bigger guys like maxime stirback like etienne moran um uh, etienne moran more more in that that puck moving kind of uh, capability capability um player so you know there's a lot still that you can you can look for um in this draft but i just don't think that this is the kind of draft where you're targeting defensemen for all right our next question comes from at p laverty 24 if a team needs to draft a future number one center cough bruins cough how low can they be and still get one um always a good question and tough to answer because how many what does it take to be a number one center in the nhl i mean most the path towards getting one is often through the draft and having a top five pick. I mean, you know, I think about some of the number one centers across the landscape. Now, the Bruins are a tremendous example of that. You don't need a first overall pick to have a number one defenseman. Patrice Bergeron wasn't even a first rounder, and yet here he is, many years later. Um, so, you know, really, I think if you're the Bruins, you absolutely want to look at the centers in this draft. There's plenty there. Um, you know, what kind of player do you want? What kind of style do you need? Um, you're never going to replace Patrice Bergeron in his level. Um, so you don't try. You just have to pick the best player available. I think the Bruins are, you know, we just talked about how, how bad do you think their prospect system has to be in order to say that we're going to take on the risk of signing Mitchell Miller. That's one of the things that still just is, is, is crazy. To me. Is like, cause it, it's not good. It's not a very strong prospect system. They are a lot of mid tier prospects in their system. Guys that will play in the NHL, but not necessarily anybody that's going to make a star impact for them. You know, Fabian Liesel is a guy that looks very promising. Um, But again, you know, is he going to be a superstar NHL player? It's hard to say. Um, So I think it's really difficult to to, to pinpoint. But if you're, you know, Adam Fantilli, I think, is the most surefire number one center in this whole draft, um, outside of Bedard, of course. Um, And there's really a question if Bedard is actually going to be a center at the NHL level because of his size, because of his scoring ability. Do you want to maximize his scoring ability by – Taking away the responsibility that he has as a center, or do you want to make sure that he's around the puck as much as humanly possible at the center position? I mean, there are a lot of different things that you can ask yourself. But you know, I think if you're picking one of those two guys, then yeah, you've got you probably have your number one center of the future. Anything else, eh, you know, you, you're kind of hoping. Um, so that's kind of where 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 I think that we're at. Is it's it's tough to, to pinpoint that. There are plenty of good centers in this draft, a lot of guys with size, a lot of guys with speed, you know, guys with scoring ability. But it's really difficult to say. Oh, there's this guy's definitely a number one center in the NHL because there's you know there's 32 of those spots in the whole NHL, and it's very it's very rare that you're gonna get multiples of that out of one draft. So tough, tough to do. All right. Next question is from at JM 11. Thoughts on Lenny uh in Liga? Awesome Liga production for a late birthday. That is true. He does have a late 2004 birthday. Hemi uh, Naho has played very well um, in the league this year. I saw him at the under 18 world championship last year, liked him there. Uh definitely didn't anticipate him having as strong a start to his league season here uh, this year. He's got nine points already, uh, which is very good production for a player, his age. Um, you know, I think that for him, there's still, you know, I need to drill down more on on him overall. At uh, the live viewings that I had of him last year, I'm certainly aware of what he's doing in the league of this year, uh, but haven't spent a ton of time on him just because I thought felt really strongly about the guys that I had kind of put in there. And uh, there's a couple of questions about process, and I'll explain, especially the during the early season, how the process works and 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 how um, how things kind of go at this stage of the season but he's one of those guys where it's like he's earned more views by the way that he's played so far. And he, and you, you continue to watch and you say, well, let's, let's figure out what's behind this uptick in production. Let's figure out, you know, what, what kind of ice time is he getting? What kind of uh, situations is he being put in? Is he getting power play time? All of those different things are, are the factors that you continue to watch over the season. But all I can say for him is that he's absolutely put himself on the radar to be viewed a lot more to, to, to drill down a lot more on, Um, and become part of that next wave of players that we really focus in on. Next question comes from at Nowariak. How do you evaluate a player that is obviously playing in a league below their level? Let's say a one later in their, let's say one later in their draft plus one year dominates the USHL, but should have been playing in the NCAA. Same with MHL, VHL, KHL. How do you evaluate progress in this case? Really good question, and it's a it's an evolving process. I think every time each player is different, each situation is different, and absolutely. When you say okay, well, let's take a, a an example for the draft plus one year. Um, you know, because of the pandemic, Sean Farrell had to play for the Chicago Steel, um, when he should have been playing for Harvard. Harvard didn't play that season, so he goes back for an extra year of the of the USHL. Sean Farrell has a hundred hundred plus points in that season. Chicago wins. And so you say, wow, that's really incredible. But you also say "At his, a player at his level, with his ability, at his age, it should not necessarily should dominate the league to that level, but should be a very strong player in the league and one of the best players in the league. And that's the expectation level. So you have all these different expectation levels that you kind of try, uh, that, that each player kind of sets for themselves. But, you know, if you see it, you see it all the time in high school. This player is, you know, is he getting challenged in high school? Maybe he's not, but does he do pro things? Does he have pro skating ability? Does he have physical strength that is just so far outmatching his peers? And does that contribute to his offense or is it his hockey sense and his skill? If it's the physical side of things, then you start taking that production with a little bit more of a grain of salt. There are all these different factors that you have to put in to the mix to decide. And, and, and that's one area where we can get stuff wrong all the time. There are guys that have had big years in the AHL or uh, different leagues when they were prospects. And you you're like, you read into it right away. You know, I mean, you look at some of the things that Nils Lundqvist did at the SHL level. He said, wow, these, these really incredible things, but they didn't necessarily translate immediately to the NHL. So that's another thing where you're just like, Oh, well, but he was so good in the, in the, in the Swedish league. I mean, it just goes back to development is not linear. Um, You know, I think for players in their draft year, I think one guy that's a specific example that was a little old for prep school, Jay O'Brien, ended up going in the first round to Philadelphia. Um, You know, I don't think that he's going to, you know, he may not play in the NHL, you know, and he was a first round draft pick. Um, He's kind of gone through and, and, but he got drafted off of a, a season where he was a little bit older playing prep school hockey. And, you know, how did that factor in? He was dominant at that level, but he should have been dominant. So you do take those things with a grain of salt, but you have to continue to watch the player and see how are they doing what they're doing, what is contributing to their success, and will that translate? Because even it's very hard for players to stay in one place for too long because there are always things that they can pick up. But, you know, it, 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 is, it is a factor that you have to continue to watch. So I really like that question. Um, you know, and also just to go the, the MHL, VHL, KHL, I take a lot of those numbers with a big grain of salt. You have to look at the, the minutes played and different things like that. You have to look at what, you know, uh, where, where a player's playing, you know, a lot of us got a lot real excited about Dmitry Ovchinnikov a few years ago about, you know, where, he, but, but he was putting up Mondo numbers in the MHL and it was very tough for me to say, you know, as I watched him to say, okay, well that production is going to translate. Um, So that's another thing where, you know, you look at those players and the MHL is very spread out. And so they might play weaker competition on one side. You know, if you're in the St. Petersburg, those groups, they're playing against the uh, various difficult teams. But if you're getting out further out on the U-20 rinks, it gets a lot harder for those guys to play against harder competition. So you have to take all that into account. So very good question. And I appreciate that one. Uh, This next one, there's actually a couple from Andres Jakub. Uh, who asks, uh, would be interested to hear how many player viewings you will get over the course of the season. You obviously must have a difference in live viewings, North America versus Europe and Russia. Do you use Instat or shift-by-shift videos to see more specific leagues before you start ranking players? Yes, Andres, every single player that gets ranked has been seen in one way or another. And, And because of the nature of this job and because of the sheer size of the player pool, the the vast majority of views anymore are coming on video. Now that didn't used to be a thing like where we would have access to things like Instat and shift by shift videos and all those different things. We, we, we didn't have that before when I first started doing this. And so it was getting video wherever you could having a bunch of subscriptions, watching as many games as you could, seeing what was free, what wasn't. um, And then also going to as many live games as you can. So I live near the USHL. So I'm going to see, I'm going to get a lot more live viewings of USHL players. That could very well be reflected in my rankings. I might have USHL players higher than they are in other rankings because I'm seeing them more. That absolutely happens. I'm always constantly checking myself against, you know, the the having that bias against the players that I've seen more. Um, but, you know, in terms of the number of games, like, you know, this next week, I'll be going to the under 18 five nations, which is going to give me some great live viewings of European players. The only time I really get live viewings of European players is at international tournaments. It's not the most ideal situation to see them away from their club, but that's where the video comes in. And now I've got the visual from what I saw, I can I, you know, I think in person it's much easier to evaluate skating against peers. It's much easier to see things like the body language, play off the puck, um, you know, how a player reads plays, um, you know, w- what they look like on the bench, all those different things, live viewing still very much matter. And so I'll get to as many games as I can for that. Um, you know, back in the day, I was usually would, at ESPN, I'd go on different trips. Like I'd go out East for a little while, do a couple college games, a couple prep school games, um, you know, go to the OHL, uh, which is really easy to get around. You know, you can see, you know, four or five games in a week a lot there and, and not be terribly far, dry, you know, not have to drive very far, um and then you know still get a lot of the USHL Minnesota High School different things like that so um it's just about you know managing your time for one and making sure that you have a lot of viewings and i'm actually changing the process of how i watch video too where i'm i'm getting more of a dedicated a lot of times it's it's you know uh because i have a lot of other things that i have to do in my job that aren't just evaluating prospects especially now at flow hockey um i there's a lot of other things that i have to kind of get to so that makes it a little bit more difficult to have the amount of time that i need to watch the players but that's where those video things like instat and other things like that come in huge hugely handy um and i still try to watch full games as opposed to just uh i I will watch shift by shift but i'll try to watch the entire game so i have the context of the game at least um you know and and see kind of how things fluctuate because that matters context of the game absolutely matters when you're evaluating a player because it tells you so much about why they might look the way they look in a certain situation was it a long shift? Was it a, um, was it a team where they, they just needed this player to double shift every, you know, every out out there. And just, those are all those different kinds of things that we do uh, to watch, uh, watch players. Um, uh, Andres also asked to how positions factor into the rankings and how do you factor league play versus tournament international competition? And yeah, I mean, I I think that you factor everything into it. Positions that obviously are, are hugely important, you know, there's a premium on right shot defenseman that gives them a little bit more value, but it doesn't, if they, if they can't play better than the left shot defenseman doesn't mean you put them over the left shot defenseman, you know, that's certainly not something like that. I think, um, you know, my general rule is, you know, if it's close between a forward and a defenseman, I take the forward. Um, Yeah. I think the forward has a little bit more of the, you know, the offensive impact. Um, That's not always the case though. There are certainly, you know, defensemen where I'll say, okay, well, this, The production isn't there, but the skating is amazing. The physical tools are there. He thinks the game at a high level, you know, so you make those kind of decisions. And so when I'm actually making the rankings, a lot of it is either, or, and I try to, you know, prioritize, I've talked about this before on the podcast, but prioritizing a hierarchy of skills that are important to me. Hockey sense being number one, you know, uh, skating skill, uh, competitiveness, all those things matter. Um, but, you know, can the player think the game? Does he play the game? If he's not a fast skater, does he play the game fast by thinking it fast? Does he move pucks quickly? Um, You know, all those different things. And so I'll check those boxes. Um, I don't always necessarily get too scientific about it. I know, like, talk, you talk to my friend, Corey Priman, all the time about, you know, trying. he tries to make it as systematic as possible, which I really respect. Mine, I try to, I, I allow a little bit of emotion to creep and I allow a little bit of, you know, there are different things to creep into is, you know, do does a player do things that really annoy me? You know, does, does a player do things and that I don't think are very helpful? You know, those are the types of things that you, and I allow that to, to, to kind of filter into my views. Um, and then it kind of comes down to would I rather this player, or this player, um, you know, and you start asking yourself a lot of questions when you're ranking a player, is this player good enough to be a top six? Is this player a number one defenseman? Is this player a number five defenseman? Is, it, you know, is this goalie, uh, does he think the game at a high enough level? I mean, there are all these questions that you ask yourself, um, and then it, you just it's constant tweaking after that, and it's, it's getting that hierarchy of skills. And so the other thing I wanted to mention is that in early season ranking, it's hard for me to see every single player that's draft eligible between now from the start of the season to now. Even if I watched a video, I would be watching video for the rest of my life trying to watch every single player. So I definitely have views from last season that I factor into this year. So those those create a little bit of the baseline going into the season. It's like, okay, well, I know Bedard, Fantilli, um, Brindley, uh, Will Smith, you know, these guys that I've seen, and they go into one pile and then they're like, okay, we use the Holinka-Gretzky Cup as another kind of gathering uh, event where it's less about what those players did at that event as to how who are the guys that I need to be more aware of? And then, you know, obviously Brayden Yeager jumps up, Jack Benson, you know, if, if you didn't, and they were known before the Holinka Gretzky Cup. So those two guys are bad examples. Um, But, you know, like uh, different players, Harabo is a good example of a guy that I hadn't seen a ton of, but he played really well at the, at the Holinka Gretzky. So now he's in the mix. So you start with a smaller pool of players. And as the season goes on, you just continue to expand, 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 expand. um, And then, you know, you hope you have a great thing, but you know, there's, if a player, I don't happen to see a player and they turn out to be one of the top prospects in this draft, that's on me. I usually use scouts to kind of like, hey, who, who am I not seeing? Who, who do I need to be aware of? I think NHL Central Scouting does a good job of getting that kind of baseline list. So you know, you, you, you try to look at those without getting invested into the group think of it too. So that's another thing that you kind of have to watch for. But yeah, it's tough. It's, it's not an easy process, but it's a lot of fun. All right, we only got a few more minutes, and so I am going to quickly go through our, our next questions, which are no longer 2023 draft related. They're actually just uh prospect questions. And this one comes from at Iserman season. Could Carter Mays would Carter Mazer be a first round pick in a redraft of 2020 or 2021? If I recall, he was draft eligible in 20 and then drafted in 21. Correct. You are. He was a second year draft eligible. And to answer your question, I don't think so. Um in a redraft The thing about uh, Carter Mazur, excellent player, outstanding talent. I think he went in a very favorable range. Um, But, you know, I think that the first round, do I think he's going to be a superstar player? No, I think he's going to be a middle six, dependable uh, guy that helps you win. And, yes, that can sometimes be a first-round draft pick. Um, But I think the way that he's played, the way that he's developed, you know, I I think he's probably still on that fringe first-round kind of situation, that 2020 class. But I love the player. I mean, he's one of my favorite players from that draft. I had him ranked in that year, um, as uh, in 2021, and um, you know I think that he really has has his his development has absolutely shot up, Um, and he's he's an exceptional young player that I think is really only beginning to scratch the surface. All right, our last question comes from at Friday five one five five. Thoughts on all the hype to build around, starting to build around James Hagens. All right, well, if you don't know James Higgins, we've talked about him a few times on this podcast. Right now, he's playing the Under-17 World Hockey Challenge and through three games, uh, or is it four? I'm sorry, it might be four games. He has nine points um, in the tournament. So nine points for James Higgins to lead all players at the World Under-17 Hockey Challenge. Um, And uh, it is in three games. So yeah, I was right. Three games, one goal, eight assists. Incredible player. He's not draft eligible until 2025. Um, Just an immaculate playmaker. Quick. He and Cole Iserman have created a dynamic duo at this under 17 challenge. Iserman has seven goals uh, and one assist so far Um, through three games. The record for this tournament is 12 goals. And that was set by Alex Ovechkin. Um, Cole Iserman has a real opportunity to break that record. The American record is 10 set by Colin White. So, Uh, Yeah, the hype around those American players, but actually the Under-17 Challenge as a whole, Macklin Celebrini has looked really good. Michael Misa, the exceptional player, scored an overtime game winner. He's got a goal in each of his three games at that tournament. The Under-17 Hockey Challenge is really one of those events that I'm so glad it's back because it does give us that preview of the next season so that we can start thinking about new players. And so I'm really excited about that. All right. Thank you for all your questions because they were amazing. It allowed us to talk a lot. Thank you for for talking, uh, for you know, listening as we talk through the Mitchell Miller situation, which remains, you know, it, it, we'll still be talking about it for a long time. Um, and thank you for checking out the draft rankings over on Flow Hockey. It's been a blast to put them together. I'm super excited that uh, that we've had an opportunity to uh, to to put those together for you. Hope you'll check them out. Definitely stay tuned to Flow Hockey. Remember, you can always watch this podcast on (coughs) flowhockey.tv, excuse me, and almost made it through. Uh, And also you can download and subscribe to this podcast anywhere you get your podcast. Make sure you do that. And please leave a kind rating and review while you're there to allow us to get the word out. My thanks to Colt Joyce for producing today. My thanks to everyone that asked questions and my thanks to you for listening. That's gonna do it for today's episode of Talking Hockey Sense. We'll see you next week. I'm Chris Peters.